The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the news today, I have two guests. Uh, first is David Moore, who is a California gubernatorial candidate from the Social Equality Party. Then I chat with Scott Silverman, who is a substance abuse expert and a crisis coach, uh, as September is National Drug Abuse Recovery Month. So stay tuned. Here are some news headlines. There are approximately 350 Americans still looking to leave Afghanistan. According to the State Department spokesperson, the State Department also confirmed at least 5,400 Americans have been evacuated since August 14. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby said that the remains of the 13 U.S. service members killed in Afghanistan are en route to the U.S. The U.S. intelligence community reached an inconclusive assessment about the origin of the COVID-19 virus following a 90-day investigation ordered by President Joe Biden, according to an unclassified summary of the probe released publicly on Friday. The intelligence community is still divided about which of the two theories that the virus came from a lab leak or that it jumped from an animal to human naturally is likely to be correct, the intelligence community said. There is consensus among, among the intelligence agencies that the two prevailing theories are plausible, according to the summary released by the Office of Director of National Intelligence. 636,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 so far. 65,605 are in California. Worldwide, that total is 4.49 million. A federal judge affirmed in a ruling Friday that California's recall process is constitutional, weeks before voting in a recall election against uh, Governor Gavin Newsom is scheduled to end. Polling from last month suggested there was enough Democratic indifference for Governor Newsom to lose the recall election, a result that would be an abrupt and historic turn of events for Governor elected less than three years ago by the widest margin in more than a generation. 12% of ballots have been collected so far. David Moore is the gubernatorial candidate from the Socialist Equality Party in the upcoming special election on September 14 to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. Moore is standing to advance the independent interests of the working class in the U.S. and internationally in the elections. He advocates for emergency measures to stop the coronavirus pandemic by protecting lives, not profit. A massive transfer of wealth from the rich to meet social needs, the transformation of the giant corporations into public utilities, full rights for all immigrants, an end to imperialist war, and a global program to stop climate change. His campaign is based on the understanding that fighting fascism and authoritarianism requires the unification of workers of all races, genders, and nationalities against the capitalist system. 
Good morning, David. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, A lot is happening in, well, in the nation as well as in California. Uh, we have, um, you know, the recall election, the special election on um, uh, in September. And you are uh, a candidate from the Socialist Equality Party. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even though I've already read your bio, but uh, just if you can give us a little bit of a Reader's Digest version of uh, where you stand and your top priorities and just like your platform, basically. Absolutely. So we're running in this election because there's an intense political crisis, not just in California, but across the nation. And it's being driven by the, frankly, homicidal response of the government to the pandemic, where the general uh, thrust of bipartisan policy across the country is to allow the mass infection, particularly of children, uh, in order to achieve herd immunity. Uh, And... We're fighting against that perspective in the pandemic. We're fighting for the elimination of the pandemic. Uh, The other main aspect causing this political crisis is the deep and growing inequality in this country. Over the past year, uh, billionaires across the country and in this state have seen their wealth uh, grow by leaps and bounds. Uh, Elon Musk, for example, has had his wealth grow from about $25 billion to over $180 billion just over the course of this pandemic. And this comes from a real class response of the Democrats and Republicans to try and place the entire burden of the pandemic on the working class, while through things like the CARES Act, uh, uh, giving enormous amounts of money, trillions of dollars to banks, pumping up the stock market, encouraging rampant speculation uh, that's really divorced from the real economy we see uh, with growing homelessness, threats of eviction, uh, growing hunger and unemployment. Um, so I'm running in this election precisely to provide a working class alternative. Uh, it's quite striking that neither Newsom nor any of the ostensible main uh, candidates running to replace him, uh, none of them are actually calling for the elimination of the pandemic. Uh, they're calling for either very minor mitigation measures in terms of Newsom or really throwing things open in terms of Uh, the Republicans and the main Democratic uh, opponents of Newsom. So we're intervening to really provide the working class uh, an alternative. Let me just go sort of straight to the point for me, you know, just to be blunt. Uh, I've always I've always believed that, you know, if a model works, why not follow it? And uh, some of the uh, social democracies of the world, nations like Denmark and Norway, Belgium, Iceland, Finland, they have the highest standards of living and the happiest people, according to polls. And, uh, you know, it's something that, um, you know, I think we would have more of. And I think it goes along the lines of what you're talking about. But it's hard to get the American public to really see that because what the right, especially the right, the Republicans were good at was making the word socialist bad, even if it's in the context of uh, social democracy or uh, democratic socialism. And, um, you know, although Bernie Sanders uh, is very popular and he was, you know, pretty successful in his run for president twice, um, I think ultimately um, 
we are in a system where although you know the disintegration of the middle class is right in front of us and uh, really the the divide between the the super rich and the rest of the well rest of america is just getting bigger and bigger but it's hard to get americans to see the light what is it how do you feel about that and do you think that you can people you can get people to see it and and what's your approach to uh to really get people to understand this uh, absolutely I, I think it's something that's very interesting i mean anti-communism has essentially been the state religion in the united states for decades for generations and the but that is steadily collapsing poll after poll shows particularly with people in their 30s and younger uh, that more of them now have a, a favorable view of socialism than they do of capitalism and it's not hard to see why i mean uh going back through my own life uh, we see, obviously, endless war for really the past 25, 30 years. Uh, I mean, it's quite striking that the U.S. has been engaged in military conflict essentially every day uh, since 2001. And at the same time, an immense growth of inequality in the United States. Uh, each new crisis, you know, the 2008 financial crash, the current pandemic, uh, the public, the working class is told, well, we need to tighten our belts. It's mutual sacrifice. And then we see the stock market reach record highs as social services like education, like healthcare are cut. And but then this comes to some of the crucial aspects of it. There's this growing interest in socialism. And the more, the, the farther left the American public is moving, the farther right the Democrats and the Republicans are going. So we see, uh, you know, just this complete agreement between the Democrats and Republicans on the need to throw open the economy during this pandemic, on the need to provide trillions of dollars to the banks, on the need to increase the military budget to record highs in the middle of the pandemic. Um, I mean, one can go on. And so I want to also address one aspect of this. You, you raised the question of, social democracy and uh, democratic socialism. And you particularly highlighted the, Nor uh, the Nordic countries. But one of the very striking things in this pandemic is Sweden uh, has actually pursued one of the most right-wing policies with regards to the pandemic uh, on par with the United Kingdom and Boris Johnson, where they uh, did not lock down, they did not engage in major public health measures and pursue the policy of intentional infection. Um, and because of that, their death rate is uh, higher, I mean, the, the, than the rest of the Nordic countries really combined. Mm. Um, and then we see a very similar parallel here in the United States, where we have the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, who actually have been promoting uh, some of these right-wing scientists, uh, advisors to the Trump administration, who are calling for the exact same approach in the United States, that because, in their words, children aren't affected as much, uh, we should uh, uh, cloister the elderly and just let the pandemic rip through children, um, which is incredibly dangerous. And I'm sure you'll probably know this being in Los Angeles with the reopening of schools, we're seeing thousands of new cases going through some of the most vulnerable sections of our population. 
So there's a, there's a growing hunger for socialism, uh, but precisely because the working class and youth in this country are moving left, all the official parties are moving sharper to the right, much more sharply to the right. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with David Moore, who is a gubernatorial candidate from the Socialist Equality Party. So let me ask you this. Let's say it's March 2020, and you were Governor Newsom, or you were Governor of California. What would you have done differently? So, I mean, it's a very good question, and I can actually... And remember, to sorry to cut you off, but Trump is in yeah. power still. Right. So <laughs> the heart of any political, any revolutionary perspective is first state the truth. And one of the big problems of this pandemic is that people have been lied to repeatedly uh, by the government. Um, and one of the big lies that's been pushed by both the Democrats and the Republicans is that vaccines alone are enough to bring us back to normal and to contain this pandemic. Now, if we go back to March 2020 and the World Socialist website, our party's uh, newspaper, uh, the Socialist Equality Party, uh, I remember this quite clearly. Uh, we were arguing from the very beginning that we needed sharp measures to, one, slow the spread of the pandemic, so lockdowns, masking, etc. But then, and this is crucial, in the time bought by these measures, we needed to establish a real healthcare infrastructure that would allow uh, contact tracing, that would allow for really the elimination of the disease uh, within the borders. Now, and then obviously this has to be integrated into a real global plan. We're currently seeing the problem of a nationalist approach towards the pandemic, where it's been allowed to spread wildly through India, and now we have this new extremely infectious variant coming out of that. So what I would have done, and most importantly, would have rallied the working class and fought with them to really push for is the closure of non-essential businesses and then the mass transfer of wealth into healthcare, into education, to get this framework of contact tracing, of quarantine, that would allow uh, the pandemic to be eliminated. Instead, what happened was there were some half-hearted lockdown measures where there was not compensation to the working class who were suddenly thrust out of work. There was not com significant compensation to small business owners who really struggled in this. And then instead of actually pumping resources into healthcare, hospitals across the state and country actually started cutting their budgets because they had to cancel elective surgeries. So we actually saw uh, decreases in uh, many nursing uh, staffs, uh, in many uh, hospitals, precisely because there was no concerted effort to actually uh, contain and eliminate the pandemic. Because of this, this then gives rise and gives it gives a real boost to the right wing conspiracy theories, uh, you know, anti-vaxxers, uh, the various people who claim lockdowns are just uh, uh, are useless uh, because they see saw the government really waste this opportunity to eliminate the pandemic. 
And now there, that resistance is being really played to by all of the main candidates in this recall election. Let me ask you this, because some, so much of what you're saying makes you know, total sense, very logical and a great plan, especially uh, your perspective in dealing with COVID-19 on a global level, as well as, of course, addressing the needs of so many different groups that were affected. But I do have to sort of play that devil's advocate here because I saw this whole thing roll out, obviously, last year when one of the reasons we have a recall is because so much of the even the lockdowns that you think, you know, you're saying it wasn't really, you know, efficient. It wasn't done enough. A lot of businesses uh, sort of turned on Governor Newsom, if you will, because of that. Um, and in terms of, and of course, you said that what you would have done is supported them more, uh, some sort of a compensation, especially the mom and pop stores uh, or just businesses. But again, I have to remind you that uh, Trump was was basically cutting off California, cutting a lot of aid to California uh, from uh, from vaccines to uh, just financial aid. We were running out of money for unemployment. So the, the a lot of challenges were there last year as they are still today um, that would make that very difficult um, and to get um, to get the buy-in from the public because uh, you know certainly you can't make everyone happy all of the time um, but I just right. I just don't know how you would be able to you know get all your great uh, ideas which I think they are great but to get them funded and to get the people's buy-in and the shutdowns and all of that when we both know that so many people, they're not even listening to scientists, you know, science that's right in front of them. Right. Uh, I, I mean, it's a good question, and I'd like to highlight it. I mean, ultimately, it's really a class question. I can go back to March 2020, and I recall precisely the situation in Oakland Unified where I was working. And I remember very distinctly uh, the district made no movement to close the schools until we teachers had actually prepared a wildcat strike with a list of demands, essentially saying, if schools don't close Friday, we're closing them on Monday. And then the district decided, okay, we'll close on Friday, uh, the 13th in March. Now, this type of thing played out all over the country. We had auto workers walking out. It really, it played out internationally, call center workers in Brazil. Uh, for example. But uh, within the United States, there were a mass of auto workers who went off the plant demanding that be cleaned, went on these wildcat strikes. And really, I credit the working class with the initial lockdowns. There was massive resistance against this from the ruling class. Now, you point to something that I think is accurate. Uh, the This right-wing recall and I think we have to be very clear, it was organized by incredibly far-right forces uh, that are seeking to really remove all pandemic restrictions. Um, and for that reason, I'm really calling on people to vote no on the recall itself. But this is, I believe, the fifth of seven recall attempts against Gavin Newsom. The first four failed, and this one succeeded uh, in getting the signatures precisely because so many people were enraged over the hypocrisy and double standards involved in the Newsom administration's public health measures, 
Um, I mean, there's some secondary issues like the whole French laundry dinner, which, you know, whatever. But the real issue was that major companies like Tesla and Fremont were allowed to operate as if, I mean, were allowed to openly defy public health measures and resulting in mass infections in their workplace. Uh, uh, and Elon Musk was given a free pass over this, while ordinary workers uh, were found themselves left out to dry, facing loss of income, facing unemployment, facing hunger. I mean, one can go on. And uh, I, I, I want to tell you what one retail worker uh, told me during this uh, campaign. They said, look, during this pandemic, I'm so pissed at Newsom because I worked in retail and over the course of it, each and every one of my coworkers got COVID. I got COVID. There was no real effort to protect us. Is there any way we can just get rid of him and get something better? And that's exactly who I'm directing the appeal of my campaign to, which is that I think very large section of the working class that finds themselves without a voice, uh, that, the entire spectrum of official opinion in the media among the politicians and to be completely blunt in the trade unions and the trade union executives is that work must go on. We have to learn to live with the pandemic. And I'm trying to give voice and fight to organize that section of the working class uh, that's never agreed with this and believes that human lives are worth significantly more than corporate profits. So it, it would be a struggle. It would not be trivial or easy to enact these measures as they need to be enacted. And the only way to really do it would be on an explicitly class basis. Uh, as you say, you can't please everyone all the time. And we have to say, look, we are going to displease the billionaires in this state. Okay. I don't think anyone will dislike that. Okay. Oh, fair enough. Did Governor, uh, Governor Newsom do anything right, do you think? Um. The best I could possibly say for him is, you know, you look at some of these situations in Florida or Texas where they're really actively banning public health measures and he's not doing that. But, you know, that is such an incredibly low bar consistently throughout this pandemic. He has been oriented to the major donors. He's been trying to gear himself up for a presidential run. And that has thoroughly been his orientation. Uh, the question of workers in this state, their health, the safety of schools has never been a priority for them. And so uh, I, I guess the short answer is <laughs> there isn't really anything he's done I agree with. Well, let's put the focus back on you uh, before we leave. Uh, let's say, uh, you know, September comes and you're elected as governor. What would be the top three priorities for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you can tell from this conversation, the top uh, priority is contain and eliminate COVID-19. Right. Um, and flowing from that and tied up with it, I think we need to drastically address the issue of uh, social inequality in this state and in this country. Democracy is frankly impossible in a situation where a handful of billionaires own more wealth than millions of people. And I mean, all of the uh, problems that flow from that social inequality can't be solved without tackling it. 
Uh, we're talking about homelessness. We're talking about access to health care, access to food. Uh, there's no little policy measure that's going to reverse those trends without fighting tooth and nail against this hoarded wealth of uh, the billionaires and millionaires in the state. So I want to sharply tackle that. And I, I mean, I guess the third real priority, it, it's, it's kind of hard to, to dissect and separate all these three because they're so integral, but the real funding and expansion of healthcare and education. It's necessary to fight the pandemic. It's necessary to fight social inequality. It's a basic democratic right that everyone, no matter the circumstances of their birth, nation of origin, language they speak, sexual orientation, whatever, everyone deserves full healthcare and a full education. Absolutely. So yeah, those would be my main priorities. Absolutely. Well, David, uh, before we go, is there a website or, or anywhere else you want to direct people to? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you can find my campaign site at socialism2021.com. Uh, that's S-O-C-I-A-L-I-S-M 2021.com. Fantastic. Thank you uh, for being on the show and chatting with you. Uh, good luck to you uh, next month, which is right around the corner. And uh, hope to uh, chat with you again soon. Fantastic. Uh, thank you very much and have a great weekend. All right. Bye-bye. That was my discussion with David Moore, who is a gubernatorial candidate from the Socialist Equality Party. Thank you, David, for being on the show. It was a very interesting conversation and uh, good luck to you. The Blunt Post with Vic. Scott Silverman is a substance abuse expert and crisis coach and the CEO of Confidential Recovery, an intensive outpatient substance abuse recovery program in San Diego. Now 35 years is sober, he has been through many struggles and challenges himself, including addiction, suicidal thoughts, and hitting rock bottom. September is National Drug Abuse and Recovery Month, so I think it's apropos to have someone with Scott's caliber to discuss one of the silent epidemics in our nation. Good morning, Scott. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I am well, Vic. You know, it's nice and early. Thanks for waking me up. I appreciate it. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I've been looking forward to speaking with you. Uh, full disclosure, I am a grateful recovering alcoholic. I have just over 13 years. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. And um, so I, just, I was just reading up about you and, uh, uh, you know, read a lot of familiar things and uh, excited to talk to you since um, tomorrow is uh, International Overdose Awareness Day, August 31st. And uh, September is the National Drug Abuse Recovery Month. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot to, there's a lot to talk about. What I want to start with is just something general. I just want you to kind of, with everything that's been going on, especially in the last year and a half, two years, um, if we were to just focus on, you know, substance abuse and the overdoses and all of that, what's your perspective and how do you see where we are today? Well, you know, uh, and I should share as well, I'm grateful to be here, 
and you know and thanks for sharing that you're in recovery to me the way we're really going to reduce the stigma is for more people to talk about it and so many aren't comfortable with it and i get that and i've been public about my own recovery for decades so i really appreciate when we're able to do something like this and the fact that you've got a platform and you're willing to talk about it to me is uh you know makes you one of the one percenters on the planet and you know it's interesting there's a there's a day for international awareness day overdose day but there's a whole month <laughs> for recovery month which is interesting when you think about you know the fact that we need a month to talk about it but the good news is we we have a lot of things going on right now which unfortunately i think are going to kind of suppress the the celebration of recovery because of what's going on with covid so to answer your direct question i think that the quarantine has quarantining has been horrible for most people i mean some people have enjoyed it you know but not many and i think what we've experienced and i i come at this from not only my experience in the rooms of recovery but also as a treatment provider a crisis coach an interventionist a family navigator and a subject matter expert so when i look at the questions like you've just asked i try to look at the whole gamut so one of the things that i know just talking to clinicians is how difficult it's been for them you know, not having a client in front of them. And then talking to people in the rooms of recovery, not being able to physically be there, you know, with that social model that, you know, keeps so many of us sober right. uh, has been very frustrating as well. And I've seen a significant amount of relapse going on um, and not by design more than just happenstance. And so going back to the quarantine thing, I, I don't think anyone that I know of has seen anything like this. So I think what we're experiencing is, you know, people who aren't able to process their feelings, people who have, you know, been isolating and don't know what to do with it. So they're acting out um, in many ways. Alcohol, for example, sales are up 75%. Uh, opioid wow. overdoses uh, in San Diego, you know, America's finest city, we like to call it. Overdoses are up 400% in the last year. So when you look at the landscape, things are really... Um, complicated and they're and they're not getting better on their own and you can't really you know get clean and be in recovery or even talk about uh getting off of self-medication on your own there's just no way to fix that on your own it's pretty unusual yeah. so i don't know if that answers your question or not well it does we're, we're, that we're kind of screwed we're kind of screwed for a little while and you know we have a group that meets every month and we were hoping next september i mean this month september coming up we were going to be able to start meeting in person it's a community room donated for our soap group society of addiction professionals and we just got an email yesterday they're closing it back down again because of uh, cdc's new guidelines with this new variant coming out so i think we're going to see this and it's going to be with us for next spring so i really encourage people you know i, I go to my home group on zoom and I'm actually going to more meetings now than I ever before because it's, it's too convenient not to. You know what I mean? You turn on your yeah. Zoom and you have your coffee and you're in your pajamas. And uh, I'm ADHD with an eight-second attention span. So for me, Zoom with 40 people on it, I'm excited. You know, watching everybody kind of move around their, their, their comfortable environments is, you know, to me it's really – it's organic and I like yeah. it. So but you said something – A lot of people don't. Though. Yeah, you said something that, you know, it's, it makes complete sense, which is it's – the experience of going into a meeting and be in person and to talk and socialize and fellowship, that cannot be replaced by Zoom or anything else. And a lot of people get their support system by being in these rooms and interacting. And Zoom is very limited with that. And 
you know, I've never been a sort of a isolator. I've always liked going to meetings and just being out. But I think the whole COVID-19 situation kind of gave an excuse to people to just say, well, I can't go to meetings now, where maybe before they were sort of forcing themselves to go and taking contrary action and such, you know, things like that. Um, right. And, and, well, and there's certainly, Vic, there's certainly an accountability. I mean, clearly, if you're going to your, your noon meeting or your evening meeting or morning meeting or weekend meeting, you're having to see people. So there's accountability. So I think, you know, to, to kind of piggyback what you were saying is some people may opt to go, well, you know, I'll just have a drink because it'll be months before they have to see all those people again. So mm-hmm. I don't even know the people I know in my meeting, that the, the volume of people that have relapsed, there's probably more that have that haven't said anything yet just because of the shame that comes around it. Um, but that social model, you know, there's nothing quite like it in, in, the, in, the, in recovery, in my opinion. And, but, you know, there's other ways to get clean, but to stay clean, it really requires um, uh, some path of recovery that you're committed to, whatever it might be. Yeah. And uh, that was eliminated. I'll tell you another side of this, which is very interesting, talking to clinicians, psychologists, psychiatrists, their whole practice is is people coming in and and sharing their stories and and them giving them advice we had a year with where psychiatrists the morbidity rate through suicide was higher than it's ever been and and a lot of clinicians have opted to move away from going to their office to work from home and some have done really well with it but a lot of them have not so when you think about the landscape um you know think about running a restaurant and all of a sudden you can't serve people if that's your passion and your love and no one's coming to you going, hey, steak isn't cooked right or, or this is delicious or, you know, your whole, you know, being changes, your whole self-worth shifts, your whole understanding of who you are on the planet. Really, you know, it's a major paradigm shift when you yeah. think about it. And then those, of course, who've lost jobs who aren't going back to work. So we're seeing, you know, consumption's up. Uh, impaired driving is up, you know, less people are driving. So when you extrapolate that data, every indication is this is going to go on for quite some time. We're going to see the morbidity rate increase and it's going to be tougher for people to, you know, reach out and ask for help. But Three of the hardest it, words in the English language. Yeah. I need help. This is The Blunt Toast with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Scott Silverman, who is a substance abuse expert and crisis coach. You said something that I think we should go back to, which is the, the stigma. And that's just like you. I'm you know, someone that believes in being open about it. And I truly don't think that the fact that I abused alcohol for three years and, and I stopped and got myself into a 12-step program I don't see that as anything to be ashamed of, and I do talk about it because I think it allows people to then be who they are and maybe perhaps share their, you know, whatever it is that they want to share with me. A lot of times people will will say, well, you know, I've thought about maybe I need to go to a meeting or this and that. And honestly, <laughs> through years, and I'm, I'm, I bet that you have this too, whenever I share like, a slogan or saying from 12 steps or just recovery period mm-hmm. uh, so many people who you know are not in recovery and don't you know perhaps don't need to be but they it helps them so much it it really helps them to cope and i know that i've coped with the even though i've had two major losses from covid last year i've coped with it a lot better because i've had those tools mm-hmm. um, and so you know talking about it 
you know, awareness, that's, that's a part of it for us to talk about uh, and take the stigma away and make it okay for others to, um, you know, talk about their problems, addiction, etc., including those who have gone out and for them to not feel shame to come back and, uh, you know, uh, get back in the program without any judgment or guilt or anything like that. Yeah. Well, we have a place to go. Think about that for a second. Yeah. If if you're if you're suffering right now, if you can't get a hold of a clinician, or you can't, you know, you don't want to call a crisis hotline, and you, you know your family's going through their own stuff, and you don't want to be a burden to them, if you will, or you don't know how to articulate yourself, or you're, you're embarrassed about it, how do you process that? I mean, I feel fortunate that I have. You know, and I can go on Zoom and Google and find probably 100 meetings a day around the world right now. I mean, that's not the optimum place to be. But at the end of the day, I have the rooms. I mean, as soon as you said to me, you know, because I don't know if I read that about you, that, you know, you're in recovery. There was a level of comfortability that just, you know, washed over me that I, I didn't have because I know where you've been and you know where I've been. And we have a, a symbiotic connectivity, whether we like it or not. And it doesn't matter what, who or how, but you know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I liken when I talk to families about the disease of addiction, I, I share about diabetes because it's really similar to what happens in the brain. And when two people who have diabetes are talking to each other, or, you know, or two marathon runners or bikers or guitarists, there's a, there's a connectivity that people have because sure. there's, there's an understanding of what, they're, what they've been through, what their passion is, how they're connected to it. And, you know, it's kind of a, it's a fellowship that I've never been able to replicate anywhere else on the planet. Absolutely. The, the, and the fellowship, as you said, is, is really strong, especially in Southern California. I think we are um, very fortunate because we have such a strong recovery community for, you know, if, if someone really wants to um, get sober, get help, uh, I don't think there's a better place to be than Southern California, as you know. Just the number of meetings there are, the, the resources, the you know, just so many programs, and you know, whichever one works for you. There are so many different styles and different um, schools of thought and uh, different options. You know, not one is going to help everyone, as we know. Um, but Southern California is really. Um, the place to be, um, I think, even though someone can get sober anywhere. And you are based in San Diego, um, which also has a great uh, recovery community. Um, mm -hmm. So I have, just have a couple of questions for you. So if for, for those who are listening who may, who may have a family member or a loved one, friend, etc., that may they think that they're struggling with uh, either you know alcohol abuse or drug abuse, etc. One, how do they know that what they know or what they think is real? And two, what would you suggest that they do? Well, it's a great question, and, and, and the simple answer is don't try to fix it yourself. Meaning, mm -hmm. if this is not something you've done before, if this is something that you're experiencing within your family for the first time. And you don't have the tools. And I, and I say that not to be disrespectful, but if you don't have the tools, it's just kind of like a, you know, a blown gasket on an engine. If you've never done it before, why would you go on YouTube and try to do it? It's pretty complicated right. unless you're very resourceful. I mean, even then, though, you're taking a big risk with someone's life. 
So get educated. I mean, they can always call me. Do you mind if I give my phone number no, out? No, not at all. All right, ahead. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I challenge people. Call me six one nine 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 three two seven three eight. I mean, I do this professionally, but if you call me off of this show, I'll give you ten or fifteen minutes of some ideas that I'm sure you either haven't thought of or how you thought of them. You don't know how to put them into play, and I can help you with that. So six one nine 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 three two seven three eight. And I'm one of those guys. Thanks that, for that. When somebody calls me and I don't recognize the phone number, I take the call. I love it because it's a chance to maybe help save a life, guide a family, and, and maybe not go to a funeral. I mean, I've been on a funeral avoidance campaign for a couple of years. So I'm an example of who you can call. There's crisis hotlines. All of the different anonymous programs have numbers that you can get online. Uh, you can go to your primary care physician. You can go to a faith-based leader. You can go to somebody. I would be willing to bet that no one who's in the sound of our voices today when they listen to this don't know someone has, who has been impacted by this. Simply reaching out to them, first of all, they're going to probably appreciate it. They may, be, may not be, but most do because now they can help others because they've been through it. And they can give you some ideas and some suggestions. But my biggest and highest uh, piece of advice in suggestions, do not try to fix this on your own. It's complicated. There's behavioral health issues around it. There's potentially untreated trauma. And telling someone to stop drinking or to stop using or don't do something doesn't work. They're trigger words. They're going to shut the person down. They're going to find ways to hide. So keep it simple. Realize, oh, my God, I have a loved one, someone I care about. They have this disease. I believe it's a disease. They may not know to call it a disease. I need to get some help, just like you would with anything else, a broken arm, you know, a tooth that's chipped, if you will. Uh, you know, my kids, they go get their eyebrows done. I mean, if we're willing to do things like that and get many petties, we certainly can go to an expert if we're not sleeping well, losing weight. You know, we're anxious. We're depressed. We're acting out. We're upset. We're, we're you know, we're frustrated. You know, and or things aren't going the way we think they should be. I mean, who, who in their right mind, if you will, is in a safe, easy place with what we've been through this last year now? Starting out with your first question, right? So and that is, asking, um... asking for asking for help. Again, three of the hardest words. I need help in the English language. But what I have found is it's amazing how responsive people are when you're willing to ask for help, and how often people want to help you more than they want to help themselves. So. Don't be shy. Reach out. Call me. Yeah, absolutely. Go online. There's tons of resources out there, and there's a, a lot of hotlines because it isn't just the substances. There's other issues that are underlying that that need to be addressed, and there's treatment out there, and there's experts out there and clinicians out there and people in recovery. Yeah. In 13 years that I've been in this program and, uh, well, 14 years, but I've been sober 13 and a half years, I've never – experienced anything negative when I've disclosed that I was uh, in recovery and I was sober. So support is is really out there. Most people are actually impressed that you're willing to um, yeah. say it out loud. And um, so that's good. I mean, there's, you know, there are so many, there's a plethora of support out there for those that, um, that want to yeah. find it. Um, I want to close with this. In terms of, well, a few years ago, or a couple of years ago, I should say, the, the opiate epidemic was sort of brought to the front burner, if you will. We started to talk about it more, but then COVID happened, and that went away. And you know now we're sort of seeing a rise again 
as well as Crystal Matthews throughout the country, where do you think we're headed and what do you think we're not doing that we should be doing as a, you know, as a community, as a society, and as a nation? Well, you know, I talk about, you know, education. I talk about getting informed. And I talk about, you know, asking questions and, and having conversations with our children, if you will, for the parents, if you will. Because, you know, and I'm a firm believer that, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I just did an interview the other day, and they asked me, what should parents do? And I said, and I was kind of glib, and I said, they should shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meaning, yeah. as parents, listen as much as you can. Your kids will say things to you that will help you better understand what next steps might look like. And, you know, part of the reason methamphetamine is on the rise. You know, at San Diego, we're a border town, so we've seen in, you know, for decades. And, I, you know, I'm a retired, unlicensed pharmacist. Know, you know what that is and that was my product that i was distributing you know right. decades ago i know a lot about it but i also know that the methamphetamine of today is almost you know north of 90 percent pure and it's 10 times less money than it was 10 years ago so and because the super labs and the manufacturers of methamphetamine mostly come from mexico they're competing, if you will, or they were anyway, with China with the fentanyl. So you've got these two major conglomerates who are competing for global share. And, you know, one of the things I heard just recently is Australia just got a huge, they said, what was it, five or six containers or something to that amount of methamphetamine. And, and they only know it after the fact. They didn't catch it, but they found out. So, you know, it, it got over there very quickly because fentanyl was such a big it's such a big thing today with the you know, uh, right counter- counterfeit medication so i think but i think the question you're, i think you're asking is what are we going to do well self-medicating doesn't work it's kind of like we learned you know after decades that oxycontin doesn't work for pain and you know it's we have to start looking at how we inform ourselves and how we make decisions and what we put in our bodies, you know, with a little bit of knowledge. So we're not making that mistake. You know, it's interesting. I but just Oxycontin read this. is being prescribed by physicians though for pain. Well, Oxycontin is prescribed by physicians. Correct. But that's really changed a lot in the last two years because of the lawsuits and the AMA and the DEA, but fentanyl, which is an opioid right. can be manufactured and can be purchased on the dark web. It can be sent to your home and you can distribute it. And when you hear about these accidental overdoses that are taking place, you know, 240 people die every day, Vic, in this country right now that we're aware of behind opioids, which is a combination of fentanyl and oxy, but mostly fentanyl now. And it's put into other medication like Xanax. So people think they're taking one thing, but they're actually getting it cut with something else. And, and fentanyl is 100 times stronger than morphine. So it's really dangerous. It's really poison is what it is. You know, but on the other hand, the manufacturers and distributors are meeting a demand. So why are we, and, and by the way, I don't believe the addiction issues that exist on the planet are anywhere close to what's going on in the U.S. So why are we self-medicating? Why are we trying to get to a new level of not dealing with our feelings and, and what about the denial? So it, it's catastrophic in my opinion. I mean, I wrote the book, The Opioid Epidemic, and that was not my title three years ago. So I changed it about a year and a half ago because I thought the crisis 
was getting bigger, and it certainly has. I mean, at least in our community. And I can't, you know, you can't pick up the newspaper or turn on the television. I mean, clearly, because of COVID and what's going on in the world, we're not hearing much about it like we used to. But it'll bubble back up because, you know, there, there is no vaccine. There is no vaccine for opioids. Right. And there is no vaccine for addiction. And, you know, people are, you know, marijuana being legalized. And, you know, I think people need to do what they need to do. But we'll talk about marijuana another day. Well, uh, thank you for that, Scott. It's, um, it's been great talking to you. For those that want to visit your website to find out more, please give us the URL. Uh, yeah, the, the, just reach me. Google me first, Scott H. Silver, but you can always find me. You can go to my direct website, yourcrisiscoach.com, and you can also call me or text me at 619-993-2738. And I'm happy to offer 10, 15 minutes of free coaching to anybody who mentions your name, Vic, and I'm, I'm happy to jumpstart them and do whatever I can to be a resource for them and their family. Well, that's very generous. Uh, thank you, Scott, very much. I appreciate it. This is a great way to start the National Drug Abuse Recovery Month uh, of September. Yep. All right. And, con- and congratulations to you on your recovery. To you as well. Hope to see That was my interview with Scott Silverman, who is a, an expert in substance abuse, and he is a crisis coach. Tomorrow is International Overdose Awareness Day, and September is National Drug Abuse uh, Recovery Month. So thank you very much, Scott, for being on the show. Appreciate your time and hope to chat with you again soon. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.